Hi everybody, this is Kerry from Donegal. And Rob from Glasgow. Welcome to the first episode of the Celtic Tales Chronicles. A podcast that examines some of the strange and wild stories that can be found along the west coast of Ireland. So we were originally going to start with a quirky tale, but as we were beginning to look into that, some news broke in Ireland and the UK that was directly connected to the west of Ireland. This news was the decision by the Trinity College Dublin to return 12 skulls stolen from Inishbofin in 1890 by a, a British anthropologist called Alfred Court Hayden, and he worked in Trinity College Dublin. So we began researching the background into this stolen skulls story. And the more we looked into the theft of the skulls, the more fascinating it became. But other more twisted and troubling facts kept popping up as we dug deeper into this subject. So we realised that in order to give the subject the coverage it deserved, we'd have to do two episodes. And just a wee heads up, some of the research took us to some very distressing places. So some of the content might be a bit heavy for some listeners. We're going to add in some trigger warnings for racism, colonialism, racial science, white supremacy, and the theft of human remains. So if that doesn't, if that's not your sort of thing, feel free to skip this one. Just skip this one and trigger warning as well. You may hear my dog barking occasionally as well. (laughs) (laughs) In the background. (laughs) And there's another thing to note as well, apart from human remains, white supremacy and dogs barking. Um, it wasn't just your man Hayden who was involved in the theft, <coughs> excuse me, of the Inish Bottom Skulls. There was another guy called Andrew Francis Dixon. But we're going to focus on Hayden as he plays a bigger role in the crime, as well as writing about it. And he's also seen as one of the founding fathers of modern anthropology. And we are not in any way belittling or complaining about the science of anthropology the incredible women and men who are anthropologists. In fact, we would like to acknowledge the work of two anthropologists who were involved in returning the, skill, the skulls to Inishbofin. Peggy Vale, an anthropologist from New York University, whose grandmother was actually from Inishbofin, and Kieran Walsh, who teaches in the Department of Anthropology at Maynooth University. So we've used a number of Kieran Walsh's articles for our research, and what we're going to do is put those details in the episode notes, as well as all our other research, because I've put quite a lot into this. And we want to also state that these opinions are our own, and we are not experts. <laughs> we're not experts, we're not anthropologists, we're not uh, steel skullers, or skull stealers, or anything like that. <clears throat> and uh, we'd be happy to hear feedback from any anthropologists, any Buffer Islanders, or anybody else in the opinion of this episode. And if you do have a really strong opinion, send us an audio clip and we might post it as a bonus episode. We might do. So I think, Kerry, we've said all that. Should we get into the story? I think we should. I think everyone's been very patient. I think it's time (laughs) to get into it. Yeah, they've been very patient. (coughs) Okay. Okay, so what we're going to do in this episode is take a look at Alfred Court Hayden, where he stole the skulls from, what might have motivated this crime, and also ask why it took so long for Trinity College Dublin to return these sacred relics, essentially, to Inishbofin. But before we examine Hayden and his crime, let's talk about Inishbofin. Inishbofin is off the North Galway coast. It's kind of out in the Atlantic. 
and it's a, a choppy boat trip getting there. But do you know what, listeners, it's well worth it. I've been there myself. I've told stories there back in the day. And when I was there, we struck with the diversity of the island. It's got all these different landscapes, this wee space. And there's birds and there's flowers. And it's really, it's a great soundscape as well. And it's just very diverse. And the side of faces the Atlantic can get a wee bit windy, but it's in a good, refreshing way. But then when you kind of walk south of the harbour and you turn around the coast and there's this stretch of white beach that's sheltered for the wind and it looks like the Mediterranean, only with the hills of Connemara across the water. And if I remember right, though, you can't swim there because of the tides, but you can walk, explore, sunbathe. It's very beautiful. I must admit, for having lived in Galway for what, seven years now? I've actually never been, so that'll be on my list this summer. And for such a small and remote place, it is packed with history, culture, and folklore. According to mythology, it was one of those strange wee islands off the coast of Ireland that floated out into the Atlantic. And the story goes that two fishermen who were lost in a mist drifted onto the shore. They lit a fire, and this fire broke the spell that had caused the mist. And as they looked around, they saw an old woman walking with a white cow. She struck this cow and it turned to stone. Now, every seven years, in order to warn of disaster, this woman and the cow emerge from Loch Bofinia, which is very interesting. And I'd love to see that, but I don't really want to be there when there's a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) I, or a strange wee woman with a cow. Um, yeah, it could, yeah, we don't know. It could be the start of a nice story or a horror movie. Um, exactly. Exactly. And uh, do you know what? I love folk tales. I love horror movies as well, but I love folk tales and I love folk traditions. And the thing about Anish Boff and Kerry is that it's, it's got lots of tales. And in the late, I was doing the research, in the late 19th century, there's a folklorist and he was called T.J. Westrop. And he went around collecting folk tales and legends and traditions from all along the Connemara coastline and island communities. And according to Westrop, the hills of Inishbofin were once filled with fairies who were responsible for children going missing or milk and butter turning bad, things like that. I do like the fairy tradition explanation, but let's examine some of those very real concerns. Milk and butter do go bad. It's happened to me. If you leave stuff out of the fridge, they didn't have fridges back then. Children do go missing on an island. That absolutely makes sense. Um, Sort of these random awful events happening, happen everywhere, but seeing them through the lens of fairy belief gives you a way of understanding or maybe even accepting them. Mm. And it might even help those who are grieving for the lost children. I know lots of my fellow Gen Z use things like astrology, tarot cards or even crystals to help explain or deal with the hardships of life i can see you all blaming all your problems on mercury retrograde i see it on twitter (laughs) (laughs) do you know what there is some folk who believe in the stock market and cutting taxes for the highest rich you know the, the high earners and i'm going to say their belief systems are more problematic i think i've always said Economics yeah. is astrology for men. It's, it's oh my goodness. Oh wow, there's a <laughs> controversy. hashtag controversy. That's the first controversy now, listeners. 
Um, men, male econom, economists, is that what they call it? Economists, I think. Genie back. They're just astrologers with money. Okay. Male yeah. economists, we're sending hugs to you. Feel free to respond. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I want to move on to another uh, wee fairy story that Westrope collected. And it's another one that gives a really good example of the wisdom of fairy belief. So one day, a fairy caused a shower of herring to fall out the sky and land in front of one of the islanders. The fairy was tempting him with all this great food, but the man knew if he touched it, he'd be caught by the fairy and would have to live with the fairy until judgment day. Now on one level, this is just a, a quirky wee story, listeners, but look at it from another way. And perhaps it's a cautionary tale, a warning folk to be careful about food. I suppose it does make sense in places as remote as the west of Ireland to be careful with your food and make sure you conserve it. So a prohibition on eating fairy food and eating excessively at all is actually a really good survival strategy. It is. It is. Yeah. Hi. Um, and is it, do you know what? I'm just thinking of that. I had a nice tea tonight and uh, we're very lucky that we have lots of food. I'm just I'm digesting just now, but the listeners don't need to know that. Let's, let's go back to more curious things about Inish Boffin because this is the scene of the crime. So one of the things that's really curious about Inish Boffin, Kerry, is that it's so small. It's got this landscape. It's got this fairy folktale scape. And then it's so small and yet as a place... It's been caught up in some really major world events. So in the early medieval period, it was caught up in the dispute over which form of Christian worship should prevail in Europe. So there were Irish and Scottish monks. They had been promoting a Celtic version of the Christian faith. But then the Roman Catholic version, which we know today, was starting to usurp the Scottish and Irish traditions. So there's a guy called St. Colman. And he's from the west of Ireland. And he studied in Iona in Scotland. And then he went on to become the third bishop of Lindisfarne in Northumberland, which is in the northeast of England. And then many of the monks there wanted to use the Roman dates for Easter. So eventually St. Colman resigned and he came to live in Inishbofin in 665 AD, which is when Inishbofin is first mentioned in written history. But even there, his community was divided over the issues and in some accounts, he left there as well. He's just one of those guys who's like, I don't like my job. I'm just going to run away. But he actually <laughs> does this. Fair play. Yeah, fair play. So the monastery carried on. But then in 1334, it was burnt down by a guy called John Darcy. Darcy was a Lord Justice who made his money by sailing up and down the coast, burning and looting. As you do, you've got to make your money somehow. If he was alive today... He'd probably be running a, a Ponzi scheme or <laughs> economics or be involved with the stock markets. But definitely. Bombing and Luton is just kind of in that place. Okay. So the monastery was rebuilt and it was in this 14th century monastery that the scene of the crime, as it were, occurred um, with Alfred Court Hayden, five and a half centuries after John Darcy's arson attack. John Darcy's arson attack. That's a great sentence. <laughs> <laughs> he was arson about. And exactly. Causing mayhem. 
Um, no, I just don't think any other incidents we uh, finish off before we carry on. Do you know what? It was also the stronghold of Grania Whale, the pirate queen, and who Queen Elizabeth, she had to buy her off. And then the 17th century, it was the last part of Ireland to come under the control of Cromwell. Cromwell is one of those tricky historical figures. I know a lot of English people do revere him as an anti-monarchy modern thinker. But in Ireland, we do have quite a few issues with him. I'm just going to use the word problematic. (laughs) I think I'm going to use the word mass murdering psychopath. (laughs) Yeah. That, that works as well. Um, so when Cromwell and forces took Inishbotham, they turned it into a penal colony, colony for Catholic clergy. And the, then the fort the Cromwellians built, and it still stands over in the harbour. Just out for that, there's um, in the harbour, there's the Bishop's Rock. And it's repeated that a bishop was chained and left to drown the rising tide. So problematic is definitely more mass modern psychopath. Fair enough. And um, we got these facts about Inish Buff, some of these facts from Inish Buff and Ellen's got so many kind of website. We'll put that in the episode notes as well. So, anyway, yeah, that was a um, bit of a rough time. Bit of a rough time. Yeah. And like the rest of Ireland, Inish Buffin has always had an issue with British power. And that brings us neatly to the events of 1890. So, to Succinctly summarise what happened, Alfred Lord, Alfred Court Haddon sorry, and his buddy Andrew Francis Dixon went into the ruins of this 14th century St. Commons monastery and they stole 12 skulls. Now, there are a number of ways to look at this incident. <clears throat> Excuse me. It could be seen as a jolly wheeze by young British academic on the make and really nobody was harmed, so why worry? Hashtag lads on tour. <laughs> But this so-called lads trip was in actual fact part of a scientific investigation founded on an appallingly racist belief system. And in carrying it out, Alfred Court Hayden Hayden, was showing deep, deep content for the Inishbofin Islanders. He then gave these skulls to the Anthropological Museum in Trinity, where they remained until very, very recently in the Skull Passage, which is a great name for a band, behind one of the lecture theatres in the old museum. And uh, it's important to know that, okay, nobody was physically harmed at Inish Boffin. But that scientific ideology that Alfred Court Hayden believed in was used by a vast criminal organisation to harm and kill millions of people. And for those who have not yet worked it out, the vast criminal organisation that Rab is referring to is also known as the British Empire. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Even as we're speaking, you can hear Connemara raindrops on my window there. Actually, I don't know if you can hear them, but there's, the rain is coming down. It's almost as if the weather has changed at the very mention of the British Empire. The skies have happened. <laughs> the storms have come on. So anyway, over the years, there's been a lot of debates about Alfred Court Haydon, not least about how to pronounce his last name, because I don't know. One argument was he was actually actively anti-racist. And I think the evidence of his career will show that this is simply not true. Now, Kieran Walsh, 
has written an article that I should be detailing some of his work as a precursor to anti-racism. We'll be discussing more on Hayden and, and opinions on his views by the scholars in part two of this episode. But I think we would describe him as not actively anti-racist. In fact, if he's not blatantly overtly racist, I think I'm trying to think of a nice I think we could call him a nice racist. Is there such a thing? You know, you know I, I'm thinking about, you know, a kind of, I'm trying to, you know, kind of fluffy, fluffy speaks without emotion to appear reasonable, even though his views are truly mm. appalling. Okay, I get you. I get the vibe. If he was alive today, he would be on like the Joe Rogan podcast or hanging out with, I don't know, Jeremy Clarkson, maybe being quote unquote witty. What is the word? Maybe the three of them. You can see them now. There's Joe, there's Jeremy, there's Alfie, and they're hanging out in a bar somewhere, getting paid millions to postulate about oh, <laughs> white replacement theory, or I don't know, uh, Jewish, trans, gender people eating Christian babies, that kind of thing. I can see it now. It would be pay-per-view, it would be on a Twitch stream, it would be, yeah. All that stuff, I don't even know, it'd be on there. And Joe Rogan would be talking in that reasonable, witty voice of his. And I have to admit, he does have a great way of talking. He is quite witty, even though what he says is appalling. I think that's like an oratory thing. People are really good at speaking. And then people don't pay attention to the horrendous things they are saying because they yeah. deliver it. It's like when you deliver bad news in a happy way. Uh, but you were wanting to read what ha Hayden had wrote in his journals as well, Rob. <laughs> as the storm clouds of Connemara pour over me. How did the British folk talk? I'm not sure. Um, I feel like the only British accents I can do are Love Island ones. Oh. So I don't know if I'll be much help. <laughs> All right. Okay, okay. Listeners, I'm just going to read the words without any accents, without anything. The words are appalling enough by themselves. So let's hear what he wrote. We too climbed over the gate, went down the enclosure, which is practically a large graveyard, disturbing some cat too, stumbled along and entered the church, tumbling over the gravestones. In the corner, we saw by the dim light the skulls in a recess in the wall. There must have been 40 or more, all broken, mostly useless. But we found a dozen which are worth carrying away. Only one, however, having the face bones. While we were thus engaged, we heard two men slowly walking along the road. And like Br'er Fox, we lay low. And like the tar baby, kicked on saying nothing. When the coast was clear, we put our spoils in the sack and cautiously made our way back to the road. Then it did not matter who saw us. The sailors wanted to take the sack when we got back to the boat, but Dixon would not give it up, and when asked what it was, said, Poaching. So without any further trouble, we got the skulls on board, and we packed them in Dixon's portmanteau, and locked it, and no one except our two selves had any idea there were a dozen human skulls on board, and they didn't know either. So there he is, go. Very witty altogether. I think what's interesting is even in Hayden's words or Hayden's words, 
it's obvious he and Dixon knew they were doing something the Islanders would not approve of. Yeah, they definitely knew. They had to sneak in at night and the sailors are clearly concerned about what they're taking off the island, what they're carrying back. It's interesting. The sailors, they're concerned. You get that sense they're concerned, but they didn't do anything. Yeah, that's true. I suppose maybe they couldn't do anything. After all, Hayden and his accomplice were both very respectable gentlemen with the money to pay for both trips. And they also were representing a very respectable institution. So maybe the sailors just thought it wasn't worth it to cause trouble with them. Yeah, so it's kind of hard to figure out what the sailors are thinking. Mm. They're obviously concerned, but they're, they're not reacting. But what we do know is that in 1893, after this event, Charles R. Brown, who's in charge of the Anthropological Laboratory in Trinity College, he also came to steal skulls. But this time, he found that the islanders had hidden the remaining skulls. As they should. And these were not the only skulls stolen. Along the West, skulls were stolen from several island and several coastal communities by various Trinity College anthropologists. So I think we need to give our listeners a trigger warning. Things are going to get a little unpleasant from here on in as we explain this, you know, dig into this fascination for skulls. So as the British Empire expanded, more and more non-white, non-European people and the lands they inhabited came under its control. And this so-called control involved the destruction of existing social systems, killings, ethnic cleansing and genocide. All of this violence, however, was viewed as acceptable by the British because racist science was used to prove that these non-white or non-European people were inferior to British Anglo-Saxons. There's an article, and again we'll reference it in the notes, by P.D. Curtin in the 1960 Journal of the Historical Society of Nigeria. And the article is called Scientific Racism and the British Theory of Empire. And it kind of neatly sums this up. According to Curtin, there was a belief that the Germanic peoples of Northern Europe were the height of human development. Quote, other races would either receive their culture in its entirety from the West or being unable to absorb it would dwindle away in the presence of a more powerful life and at last become extinct. End quotes. Become extinct. Just think about that. You either absorb Western cultures and value, which means allowing your land to be destroyed, your faith, language and social systems all to be destroyed, or else you will become extinct. Those are your options. That is horrendous. Yeah, that's, that's the options. The extinction of those peoples who did not comply, that became an active part of the political, economic and cultural remit of Western empires, especially the British Empire. And one of the ways that these scientists showed the distinction between so-called superior and inferior peoples was by comparing their physical attributes. Again, to quote Curtin, the key scientific fact that was the belief that physical appearance was merely an outward mark of an inborn and permanent inferiority for all non-European peoples, end quote. Skulls and bones... That's how you could tell a distinction between the races of peoples, by the shape of their skulls and bones. So wherever the British Empire went, its scientists dug up skeletons 
sacred places or measure the physical bodies of living indigenous people or even freshly deceased people. And the Irish were seen as another primitive race that required subjugation in order to civilize them. And, you know, there was proof of the primitiveness, primitiveness of the Irish. It was all around. Um, they persistently refused to change their culture, language, faith and society to the superior British ideals. And not only that, but they kept resisting British attempts to impose those benefits on them. So, of course, they had to be primitive. And in the 18th century, the Irish were often compared to the First Nation peoples of North America. And in the mid-19th century, a racial reading of the theories of Charles Darwin created an evolutionary understanding of the inherent inferiority of the Celts and of the Irish in general. They were seen as closer to apes than other white Europeans. This became a common part of British attitudes towards Irish. They were either the ape-like barbarians and drunks of Punch magazine, but they were too innocent and otherworldly to rule themselves. And these views of the Irish were not confined to conservatives. Many progressive thinkers held these views. And here's a quotation, and again, trigger warning, from a letter written in 1861 by Charles Kingsley, who's regarded as a progressive thinker, and he's the author of The, the Water Babies, and he, he wrote this letter to his wife, after he was visiting Sligo in the late 1860s. So I'm going to read this quote. So start quote. But I am haunted by the human chimpanzees I saw along that hundred miles of horrible country. I don't believe they are our fault. I believe that they are not only more of them than of old, but that they are happier, better, more comfortably fed and lodged under our rule than they ever were. But to see white chimpanzees is dreadful. If they were black, one would not feel it so much, but their skins, except when tanned by exposure, are as white as ours. End quote. This quote really exemplifies the thinking at the time. It was easy for Kingsley to completely dehumanize people of color because they looked different from him. But when he was classing white Irish people as chimpanzees, it made him much more uncomfortable because they looked a lot more like he did. Yeah, so, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, just, just take a just, moment. Yeah. yeah, takes a moment to sink in. Absolutely horrendous. <laughs> There's not a bad enough word to yeah. describe that. Um, so, from this viewpoint, the Irish were primitive, it was a given, and they had their uses as cannon fodder, as labourers, and, of course, as research subjects by scientists who perceive evolution as progression from inferior to superior, from white Anglo-Saxon, you know, with white Anglo-Saxon Germanic peoples being the absolute superior. So before we fall into the trap of treating the Irish as simply victims of history, it is well to note that Ireland was then and is now and always will be a very diverse and dynamic nation and we do want to quickly note that white Irish people do, of course, benefit from white privilege. Uh, yeah. And um, we need to be careful about that ourselves. Um, 
yeah, it's always been a multicultural society. You know, there's been Vikings, Scots, English, Welsh, French, Italians, and, uh, you know, you get the great ports in Galway and Dublin, and they'd be filled with languages and cultures from across the globe as well. So Ireland has always been a melting pot and also a place of refuge. In the late 17th century, thousands of Protestant Huguenots fleeing persecution in France came to Ireland. And in the late 19th century, many Lithuanian Jews flew the, fled the Russian pogroms to settle in Ireland. And this was not unusual. Ireland had existing Jewish communities as well as a long Jewish history, with Jewish people first being recorded in 1079, giving gifts to the King of Munster. So, yeah, then what we'll try to say, there's great richness and optimism in Ireland, whether it's oh, all the different fields of sports, music, language, political organisations, mass meetings, small businesses, the whole lot. And it's all going on in Ireland in the late 19th century. Just had been going on long before then, and it'll be going on long in the future. And Ireland has also had an incredible LGBTQIA plus history, Going way, way back, you can find great queer tales in our bardic poetry. And the traveller community has also been here from the start with a complex and rich culture. Just take a look at the folklore. I guess, I guess what we're trying to say is that the Irish are no more victims of history than they are the saints of history. I think that's what we're trying to say. Ireland and Irish people are as nuanced and complex as anywhere else with all the good and the bad that comes from that. In Ireland and in Scotland as well, <laughs> it has to be said, we sometimes run the danger of having very binary narratives, you know, two things in opposition. I think that's definitely true. You have union versus independence, orange versus green, north or south, Irish and English, or Catholic and Protestant. Yeah, and it's these narratives sometimes we're, we're almost taught them and we have to accept them and you know actually life is far richer and far deeper far more complex than that and that's not just about a nation and cultures that goes for individuals as well noting that that this would be a great time to mention our pronouns <laughs> so before yeah so before we even began recording we were trying to think of how to introduce ourselves um, so, as you know, Kerry from Donegal has a great ring to it. Um, I do use she, they pronouns and identify as non-binary. So there's a quote I really like. I can't remember if it's Prince or Janelle Monet. It's one of the two, but it's, I'm not a man or a woman, I'm an experience. And I think that sums me up pretty well. I I love that. You're definitely an experience. <laughs> I'm described as a, a ray of sunshine from Donegal, as well as an experience. That's Thank you very, very much. That makes me very happy. And with you, Rob, God alone knows how to describe you. <laughs> <laughs> I've given up, but um, I think people who know me or come to the shows, they would not be surprised to hear that I don't fully or even remotely into <laughs> perceived norms of male or straight. I, I think I fell out of that wheelhouse a long time ago. Sure, go on. Uh, which means I haven't a clue. And until I figure it out, I am going to describe myself as 
working class Glasgow male channeling ancient omniscient pagan sky goddess. Would that work as a pronoun? It's a bit long, but until you figure it out, if and when, it'll make a great bonus episode and it sounds good to me. So subscribe so, now, guys, for the updates. Stay tuned. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So anyway, to come all the way back now, um, one of the things we were researching this is that we realised we were in the danger of falling into a very binary, you know, to this, this or that kind of view of history. It seemed like a very simple story at the start. A bunch of English racist scientists start stealing Irish skulls from sacred places. It seems pretty cut and dry, good guys, bad guys. But that's not actually the case. No, I guess that we bit more complicated because then we came across an account of something else that was happening in Ireland at the same time as the skull stealing was going on. And what was happening was very dark and quite twisted. And acknowledging that meant that our story had to change and become two episodes. Yeah, yeah. But it was the way to go. I mean, the only other option was to ignore this other thing we came across. You know. Exactly. And for for us personally, it was not an option to ignore it. We never want to be erasing history. We want to be illuminating it, talking about it, the good, the bad. And in this case, the very ugly. Very, very, very ugly. So... To find out about this other twisted event, check out part two of the Wicked Skull Feet of Inish Boffin. So, <laughs> yep, sorry, go on. Interrupted. Yeah, I'll say that again. To find, out, to find out about this other twisted event, stay tuned, subscribe to the podcast, and make sure you listen to the part two of the Wicked Skull Thief of Inish Boffin. So all the articles we use to research for this episode will be posted in the episode notes if you want to do any further reading. And if you're interested in even more further reading, uh, check them out. Oh, I said that wrong. Sorry. I need That's to do that right. again. What's right? Um, What's wrong? Who cares? The rain is still pulling down. There's lightning and everything going up here. Oh, my God. Very good. Okay, I'll do that again. Um, all the articles we use to research for this episode will be posted in the episode notes if you'd like to do some further reading. Uh, so definitely check those out. And remember to follow us on our social media as well. I'm at the Kerry Graham on Twitter and on Substack. Please subscribe. It's free and it makes me very happy. <laughs> yeah, I've read some of your work. So go read Kerry's stuff on Substack. Go do it now. And as for me, um, I'm on Instagram. Celtic Tales Galway um, for tickets for the show uh, where you can see I'll be telling stories and Kerry will be there as well chat to folk all that um, check out the Eventbrite link in the episode notes I also occasionally come on uh, Twitter uh, Havering Rab but mostly I'm on Instagram yeah. yep very visual Welcome. person definitely check out the Instagram <laughs> I check out the Instagram. Thank you very much. So that's us. Oh, we're finished. Is there any news? How's your life been, Kerry? How's how's, how's my life? Um, I just started embroidering recently. So it's my granny's 90th birthday on Friday. So I decided to do some embroidery for her. So that's what I'm gonna do once we finish recording. What about you? 
Oh, do you know what? I love sewing. I love uh, doing all the wee repairs. I just love taking time out to sewing. I love sewing. So I, I don't think it's great. Yeah, I've done a fair bit of sewing this week. Um, I think I'm just happy the shows have started again. And they're doing really well. We've two full, full houses so far. So hopefully the audiences will keep coming. And uh, thank you very much. Thanks for coming to the shows. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your ancient enemies, get them all to subscribe. Exactly. Tell the person you're sitting beside on the bus. Tell the taxi driver. Tell yourself in the mirror just to really reinforce it. Just, you know, spread the word. Spread the word. All right. I think that's us. Sloan. Sloan. Sloan.